you have people writing memoirs of that particular period who say, if you were a thinking working man, your only choice was Bradlaw or the bottle. Now, one of the attractive things about Bradlaw is his optimism, because he really thought that if you could make ordinary people free, free from the constraints of religion, they would make good. You're listening to episode 43 of the National Secular Society podcast, presented by Emma Park. On the 30th of January, 1891, after years of overwork and illness, Charles Bradlaw died in his home on Circus Road in St John's Wood, London. This episode, on the 130th anniversary of Bradlaw's death, will celebrate his life and work. We'd like to persuade you that his contributions to British parliamentary democracy and to civil liberties deserve to be better remembered. From an early age, Bradlaw was a strong individualist who was not afraid to speak his mind. In 1866, at the age of 33, he became the first president of the National Secular Society, which was to become a leading focus of working-class radicalism. In 1872, he published a scathing indictment of the British monarchy, entitled The Impeachment of the House of Brunswick, in which he lambasted the previous monarchs for their ineptitude and extravagance. In 1876, he nearly got imprisoned after he and his fellow secularist, Annie Besant, published a birth control pamphlet and were prosecuted for obscenity. Bradlaw first tried to enter Parliament in 1868 as a Liberal candidate for Northampton. After two failures, he succeeded in being elected in 1880. However, when he got to Parliament, the House of Commons would not allow him to take his seat because, as an atheist and Republican, they did not believe that he would be bound by the oath of allegiance to the Crown, which most MPs were required to swear on the Bible. He was returned three more times, and each time he was still forbidden to take his seat before he was finally allowed to do so in January 1886 after winning the election for a fifth time. Meanwhile, he had been prosecuted, imprisoned in the clock tower under Big Ben and forcibly ejected from the House. Bradlaugh had only five years as a sitting MP before he died at the premature age of 57. In that time, among other things, he introduced a private member's bill which became the Oaths Act 1888. This allowed non-believers to affirm instead of taking an oath, both in Parliament and in other official and legal settings. Bradlaugh had become the embodiment of secularism and progressive constitutional reform in Parliament. Joining me now is David Nash, who is Professor in History at Oxford Brookes University. David's research interests include blasphemy and radicalism in Britain, the history of religion and the history of law and crime. He is the author of numerous books and articles and a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. David, first of all, how did you come to be interested in Charles Bradlaugh? Uh, well, I think it comes from very much the sort of period and institution I went to as an undergraduate and then a postgraduate. I grew up very much with wanting to pursue social history and the sort of mission of historians like Edward E.P. Thompson to sort of find people who had been hidden from history. And I also had a deep interest in the uh, politics of, of radicalism. So when I went to my first university, which was University of East Anglia in Norwich, I was lucky enough to be taught by Patricia Hollis, who was one of the great historians of the unstamped press of the 1820s. And uh, from there, I went on to do postgraduate study at the University of York. And with my supervisor there, Edward Royal, who had really pioneered work 
trying to look at the secular movement in England, one discovered that there was so little properly researched about this whole area. So I basically plunged into the study of the secular movement in, in, in Britain in the second half of the 19th century. And sort of almost from there, I've never looked back because I've then gone on to do more work in this area into the 20th century, but also to look at things like the history of blasphemy. So it's it's really been a sort of desire to uncover uh, areas that haven't been properly uh, historically investigated and to show up their importance, I think. Edward Royal himself was wrote several books, I think, about uh, the secularist movement in the 19th century and then the study of, of infidels like Bradlaugh. Yes, I mean, his two books, uh, he did one on the earlier part of the Victorian period and then the later part. They are they are still the starting point for anyone who wants to investigate this area. Uh, and there's still much to be uncovered and properly analysed. Let's go back to Charles Bradlaugh himself. Now, he founded the National Secular Society in 1866, but who was he and how did he come to found the NSS? Um, well, Bradlaugh's born in 1833, which is a sort of birth date that places him after the sort of radical fallout from the French Revolution and important um, free thinkers and infidels like Richard Carlyle and Susanna Wright. So he's born after that. But he does get a foothold in that particular zeitgeist because he loses his religion in adolescence and is forced to leave his own family home. And the first person who takes him in is Eliza Sharples, who is a woman who had been the common law wife of Richard Carlyle. So immediately he's got that sort of connection with uh, old infidelity. And sort of from this, uh, he was able almost to cut loose in London. And he had an absolutely meteoric rise in metropolitan lecturing circles. Uh, and on the back of this, he was invited to become an editor of the newly uh, launched radical and secular periodical, The National Reformer. And into the 1860s, he became, as you noted, the first president of the National Secular Society from its foundation until he finally relinquished this in 1890. Throughout this time, since his adolescence, he was a very staunch atheist and campaigner with a sort of attitude that was very much about smashing and destroying religion. And indeed, he gave himself the uh, nom de plume of iconoclast, uh, which is what uh, many uh, friends and opponents uh, knew him as. And that title very much says it all about his uh, approach to what he wanted to happen to religion. In terms of what he did with the National Secular Society, he was quite often an advocate of the sort of set-piece publicity-seeking demonstration of sort of power or challenge. Uh, and he frequently put this into practice. He worked tirelessly on set-piece lectures, biblical disputes with members of the Christian fraternity during this period. He wrote uh, a voluminous amount of journalism, but also involved himself in a host of adjacent radical causes like Universal suffrage. He advocated universal suffrage, Irish home rule, the radicalism that became socialism. He actually attended uh, the first international, but very quickly withdrew from it and became quite notable after this for being an anti-socialist. 
He was also a Republican who wrote some hard-hitting pamphlets against the monarchy and its behavior, but also other sort of set-piece agitations such as uh, the Knowlton pamphlet trial of 1877 when he stood in the dock alongside Annie Besant, uh, accused of having published uh, an obscene work. But I suppose his crowning glory is that he becomes a member of parliament after three attempts when he's blocked from entering parliament because he cannot swear a religious oath. But he finally gets his way in 1886. But if we think of a life lived at sort of double speed, all this is really too much for a man who for a lot of his life had considerably poor health. And he died perhaps in the end prematurely in January 1891. But equally, you could say he probably packed into his life more than people who live twice, dare we say it, three times as long. Because he, he was an incredibly hard worker, wasn't he? Absolutely. Uh, and there was constant lecturing, constant writing, constant uh, work with the law to defend himself from people who would bring multiple lawsuits against him. This happened particularly during his attempts to enter Parliament. He also had a newspaper to run, and he also had, uh, unfortunately, a quite ill wife to look after, uh, alongside his own uh, quite fragile health. Because uh, she she ended, Susanna ended up being an alcoholic, didn't she? Yes, right, yes, a mm. very sad story. Mm. So just you talked about his meteoric rise. What was it about his personality which enabled him to rise in this way? Well, I think he was very physically imposing. He was he was sort of six foot tall, and he was a particularly forthright and blunt speaker. And you know, if you were standing aside, sitting on a platform alongside him, what you would have noticed looking out into the crowd is how he very much had a common touch and became really a sort of cult hero for the rank and file of uh, radicalism during this period. And, you know, being involved in that range of causes meant he was capable of attracting you for one or two of those causes, but not necessarily for all of them. But in many ways, that was enough to give him this sort of charisma and power. And he, uh, you, you said he was a figure for the working classes. I mean, his background, he was very much from a working class background, wasn't he? He didn't have any money of his own. Yes, indeed. This is very important. Um, he was, as many of the people in the secular movement of that period, he was largely self-taught. He'd been the son of a solicitor's clerk and his father spent a great deal of time barely trying to keep the family together financially. Where would that have put him on the social scale, the, the son of a solicitor's clerk in, in that era? He might have been the very, very bottom rung of the middle classes, but you know, in many respects, some of this is about wealth as much as position. And if you had a sense that your family had never had enough money, then uh, during that period, there were many stories of people um, pushing to, to, to make better of themselves and to reach some degree of economic uh, prosperity, which indeed Bradlaugh did for uh, some time in his life. How did the National Secular Society evolve under Bradlaugh's leadership? Well, in a sense, it's sort of slightly two-edged. The National Secular Society during this period was really very much his movement. And 
you know, he had pe people working with him, uh, but they always got the sense that they were working for him rather than with him. And it's a frequent complaint you get from people that the, the National Secular Society was far too focused upon him. So, you know, there are many things that Bradlaugh defines about the National Secular Society that make it one thing that's good for the people who like that, i.e. metropolitans, atheists, but also his uh, strident personal style meant that he had clashes with other members of the NSS and, and other leaders. But also being atheist meant that people who had slightly different beliefs, say people who were positivists like Frederick James Gould or ethicists like Stanton Coit uh, and uh, his, you know, his lifelong sparring partner was George Jacob Holyoke. All these people had slightly softer relations with uh, Christianity than Bradlaugh was prepared to have, which in the end meant that the NSS seemed to get shaped as a campaigning organisation. And other groups like ethicists, positivists and humanists tended to concentrate much more on, um, if you like, the movement culture of providing things for their uh, members. So, you know, Bradlaugh perhaps turning up at uh, South Place Ethical Society to see uh, the ethical church in action would have thought to himself, what's the point of this? I don't see the value of this at all. So would, would you say Bradlaugh was more, more militant and more destructive in, in his campaign? Indeed, much, much more. What, what did secularism mean to Bradlaugh? I mean, did his idea of secularism mean that the National Secular Society approached um, secularism in a different way from other people who called themselves secularists, like Holyoke or um, Foote. Yes, I mean, in some in some respects, this is a, a different interlude in uh, the things that secularism thought in the 19th century, because Bradlaugh's predecessor, George Jacob Holyoke, had very much come out of the socialism of Robert Owen, which interestingly talked about uh, the problems of society being not overproduction but underconsumption. That sort of socialist approach is about communitarianism and about creating some sort of form of perfection on earth. But Bradlaugh was very different. Bradlaugh was from this different generation, born in 1833. And it's no coincidence that as a result of this, he became anti socialist and individualist. Why is Bradlaugh so opposed to socialism? I think many reasons, because there were many liberals during that particular time who saw socialism as dangerous, saw socialism as too infected with forms of Christianity. Uh, and Bradlaugh being an individualist and uh, having worked his own way up would have said that it was very much down to individuals to engage in that form of struggle rather than throw your lot in with uh, forms of uh, dangerous quasi-religious belief. I think also one of the things that he distrusted about socialism was that it wasn't entirely English. He had a great reverence for English institutions, which is one of the unknown reasons for why he wanted to enter Parliament. He was very much a constitutionalist, wasn't he? Um, unlike the socialists, he was, he was never in favour of, of violence and political violence. Uh, except occasionally at his own meetings when he had to deal with people who'd come to break them up. 
his, his anti-socialism, it also saw socialism as dangerously Germanic, I think. And as you say, this, this uh, constitutional uh, reverence for the law and for offices, if not the people who always held them, was something that drove him. And uh, uh, also bear in mind that his, his constituency was of uh, the lower middle class and the skilled working class. In Northampton, yeah. Well, in Northampton and generally, who, people who might have felt that uh, they had more to lose from socialism. And bearing in mind, socialism only properly convinces the working classes that it ha- it speaks for them in the 1880s and beyond. And is it, it's at that point um, that secularism as a, a national movement wanes in, in influence, is that right? Well, I think possibly it, it wanes in influence. It's often said it wanes in influence actually with the death of Bradlaugh that the people who come after Bradlaugh don't have anything like the charisma or drive uh, that he uh, actually had. I suppose there's an extent to which socialism's um, eclipse of liberalism is also in its way an eclipse of secularism's attachment to the liberalism of of the the last decades of, of the 19th century, which itself does undergo something of a decline. Are secularism and liberalism so closely attached, partly because they were sort of united in the person of Bradlaugh? Um, I think that's true, but there's also a, a, a secularist attachment to individualism as an idea. So they're very interested in Herbert Spencer. They're very interested in this idea of you reach forward for the truth under your own steam, which is something that had driven all the people who were in the movement from the 1850s up until the 1890s. They're people who had got to secularism through their thinking and reading. They, to this day, distrusted sort of shop-bought-off-the-peg solutions. How how did Bragg's idea of secularism and um, the ideas of of secularism in the NSS in the 19th century relate to um, what secularism is today? Well, I think he wanted to make all things secular, but also within that to make all areas of life not in any way beholden to religion. So, you know, I think if he were alive today, he'd be quite surprised at the sheer persistence of religion, you know, how religion still, particularly in the the face of the Church of England, how religion still tries uh, to speak to the nation tries to speak to people's morality. I think he'd be very surprised at the existence of faith schools, particularly with the work done to try and undermine this in school boards and uh, the 1870 Education Act. Uh, Bradlaugh would have hoped that that had gone forward to be fully secular by now. And of course, what Britain still still has a, a is not a secular country. We don't have a secular constitution. We we still have bishops in the House of Lords. Exactly, he'd be very appalled to see the Lords spiritual in the House of Lords. But pleased, he'd be very pleased that poverty has been tackled through access to information to control people's fertility. So he'd be very pleased with developments like the the NHS in terms of controlling people's fertility. But things like NHS might be slightly double-edged for him because, remember, his individualism would potentially have distrusted the control of people or potential control of people from cradle to grave. 
Now, David, you've written an article about the numerous biographies that were published about Bradlaugh, both during his life and after his death. And you've even described the story of his life as endlessly recreated. Uh, who was involved in writing these biographies of Bradlaugh and what were their aims? There are various uh, biographies of him, with some of them with different aims. What happens is some other secularists seek to tell the story from their point of view. And occasionally, particular episodes had individuals squabbling over them. But more important than that is the raft of sort of phony, bogus, invented biographies of Bradlaugh written anonymously, which had several purposes. I, I, they were they had sort of salacious copy about things that he had allegedly done. So, you know, they were pieces of cheap journalism to earn some money. But they were also aimed at undermining his reputation. So, you know, just to give some examples from his lifetime, there was an accusation that he had indulged in spiritualism, which Bradlaugh refuted. He, he did admit to the fact that he had been interested in mesmerism, you know, hypnotism. Basically, he claimed this was to help him control pain in his illness because he suffered for a very long time with hereditary Bright's disease. So he, he used mesmerism to control pain, but not spiritualism. Another biography talked about how in 1867, 1866 and 67, he'd been involved in the Reform League that was pushing for what eventually becomes the Second Reform Act. Uh, and there was a story put about that he had concocted a plan to burn down London uh, during that particular agitation for the reform bill, but had ultimately chickened out of doing this. So, um, you know, that's a double story that calls him both a traitor and a coward. Why is it that Bradlaugh um, attracted these um, slanderous biographies? Why did he attract so much controversy? Well, because he is the um, he's the go to name for secularism during this period. You know, he made himself de facto uh, and visible leader of this movement. So he actually becomes this particular target, you know, both for political accusations. But also one other famous one was the so-called watch story, uh, which was put about that him or other secularists would regularly stand on lecture platforms and say, I'm going to look at my pocket watch for one minute and I defy the almighty to strike me dead. And sort of the idea being that these were sort of circus music hall provocative acts proved nothing one way or the other. And it also meant for people writing these up that if Bradlaugh had said this, all it displayed was the m potential mercy of the almighty who hadn't actually struck him down. Uh, but the really dangerous stuff comes from his deathbed. And indeed, the 19th century is full of attempts to make secularists recant their secularism and atheism on their deathbed. And attempts were made to do this, most interestingly, by Charles Bradlaugh's own brother, William, who was in many ways a mirror image of him. He tried to create a Christian evangelical movement to try and sort of overwrite everything Charles Bradlaugh had done. And he put about stories after Bradlaugh had died that Bradlaugh had recanted on his deathbed. 
do you think that the um, proliferation of these biographies contributed to the fact that Bradlaugh is perhaps less well known today than he, he ought to be? Uh, do, you, do you think he ought to be better known, his, his place in 19th century British history, to be um, better acknowledged? Yeah, I don't. I wouldn't necessarily say it's those biographies that have caused it. I think there are other things that has meant he hasn't really had the place due to him in 19th century history, because a lot of radical historians would sort of think of Thomas Paine and then the Chartist movement as the radicalism of the early part of the 19th century, and then the later part is seen as the rise of socialism. So this radicalism in between was something undiscovered and not talked about. And in fairness, it's one of the things that attracted me to the period, that it was seen as this sort of big gap between Chartism and the rise of socialism. And what Bradlaugh does for radicalism is effectively fill that gap if you put him, if you're prepared to put him in there. He's very much the first person also to breach barriers and this breaching of barriers is something that other radicals learnt and followed. What, what barriers in particular? Um, barriers of being able to speak directly to the working classes, uh, being able to get into Parliament, which he still really manages to do before later radical movements, of challenging a whole host of vested interests in all sorts of areas. And he's also got influence upon radicals at the top and bottom of society for what's really 30 crucial years from, you know, sort of the 1860s up until the start of the 1890s. Uh, and this is important because you, you have people writing uh, memoirs of that particular period who say, you know, if you were a thinking working man, your only choice was Bradlaugh or the bottle. I was also very surprised when I was doing work on this that a lot of the accounts of Bradlaugh end with the day he gets into Parliament. But he had a considerable life in Parliament where he worked tirelessly for small producers and people who fell foul of um, vested interests. And he be became known also as the member for India because he attacked uh, the attitudes of the British aristocracy in India. He spoke out for Indian rights. Uh, and what this meant is that when he ended up going to India in 1889, basically to recover from a health that was collapsing, when he gets to India, he's actually fated as a national hero by the Indian uh, independence movements of the period, who had learned what they were uh, tried to campaign for by looking at this liberal line of John Stuart Mill and Charles Bradlaugh. Uh, and indeed, it, Mahatma Gandhi actually comes to Bradlaugh's funeral in 1891. And he's fated in India because the things he say in, says in Britain, that he wanted uh, an atheist republic, means that he is not always taken seriously in England, but it, his message of an atheist republic is music to the ears of Indian nationalists who want to smooth out the differences uh, in Indian religions by having a secular state. But equally, they don't want to go back to being ruled by Indian kings and nabobs in a, an India where the British have left. They wanted a secular republic. Now, of course, Bradlaugh finally took his seat as the first openly atheist MP in early 1886, and then he died in 
January 1891. So he didn't have many years in Parliament. Do you think if he had survived longer and had had, say, another five years in Parliament, the history of, of secularism in Britain in the 19th century would be more important today, would have a, a better acknowledged place than it does? I think that's possible. You know, quite whether he would have got as far as cabinet status is difficult to determine. But what's interesting is a, a generation and a bit on from him, the leading um, secularist of the one of the leading secularists of the day, uh, John McKinnon Robertson, does indeed get cabinet office in a liberal government. It's possible that some other reforms might have taken might have happened more quickly because it's only in 1917 that it becomes legal to leave um, bequests uh, to be used for um, secularist and atheist purposes as a result of the Bowman case of 1917. It might be if Bradlaw had been in Parliament, he would have done more to do that. He did ensure that atheists were allowed to enter Parliament with an act forced through not long after he took his seat in Parliament. So I think it would have accelerated things uh, very much. In, ter in terms of recognising the secular contribution to society. But equally, what would his relationships have been with the growing independent Labour Party and the, the socialist movement of the 1890s? That's, that's a very interesting historical what if. Let's talk about, finally, about Bradlaugh's legacy today. Um, now, one of the things he failed to achieve in his lifetime was the abolition of the offence of blasphemy. And in the end, that was blasphemy was not actually abolished in England and Wales until um, the first decade of the 2000s, I think it was 2008, 2009. What do you think Bradlaugh, if he had been alive today, what would he um, have seen as the biggest threats to freedom of expression and freedom of conscience in modern Britain? Well, I, th I think it's quite possible that he would still see religion as, as having a role to play in free speech. And, uh, you know, we have to look around and see that there are still pronouncements from uh, the European Union in the shape of things like the Venice Commission, who have spoken about how blasphemy laws are something that uh, have a deeply chilling effect on free speech. And, you know, Bradlaugh would have been appalled by that. But I think looking around society more generally, I think there are other things that he would want to think and say. You know, his life was really a demonstration of the virtues of reading, thinking and studying and I, I think he might be appalled by the way in which some aspects of the internet and social media have taken over from reading, studying and thinking. He would perhaps look at this and see that far too many opinions that people have are filtered for them by reading uh, short expositions of ideas, uh, summarised bits. And he would have been concerned that sort of not reading deeply, thinking and studying deeply would be a threat to free speech. And are also the sort of things that are responsible for the rise of populist politicians like uh, Trump and, jo and Johnson. You know, he would be saying, don't accept what you're told, especially when it seeks to defend vested interests, which he would he would look around modern Britain and see vested interests everywhere, I think. Uh, you know, he'd be telling people to research your counter-arguments effectively and never tire of offering them. So a really inspiring example. Yes, and I think uh, one that should be studied even more deeply. Professor David Nash, thank you very much. Thank you.
To reflect on my interview with Professor David Nash, I'm joined now by Bob Fuda, NSS historian and long-standing member. Bob's great-grandfather, also called Robert Fuda, was the first paid secretary of the NSS in the late 19th century. Bob will be giving me his own perspective on Charles Bradlaugh. Bob, hello. Good evening. Professor Nash talked briefly about Bradlaugh's character. Uh, my impression from reading about him is that Bradlaugh was indeed incredibly charismatic and his charisma and his personal qualities were a really large factor in his success. What's your view about this? Well, first of all, he was a big man. He had a very large head and he had a very strong voice. Um, I've got a couple of quotations here, Emma, which might be useful. The first is from Harry Snell, who in later life became a Labour MP, and eventually he was um, leader of the Labour Party in the House of Lords. And this is what he wrote about Bradlaugh in um, something published in 1933. Bradlaw was already speaking when I arrived, and I remember as clearly as though it was only yesterday the immediate and compelling impression made upon me by that extraordinary man. I've never been so influenced by a human personality as I was by Charles Bradlaw, the commanding strength, the massive head, the imposing stature, and the ringing eloquence of the man fascinated me. And I became one of his humblest and most devoted followers. And that's from a, a later Labour MP. Yes. And there's Annie Besant as well, of course, who was became perhaps his closest ally over the um, republication of Fruits of Philosophy and for a number of years afterwards. And she described in her autobiography the first occasion she saw him. Eloquence, fire, sarcasm, pathos, passion, all in turn were bent against Christian superstition till the great audience, carried away by the torrent of the orator's voice, force, hung silent breathing soft as he went on, till the silence that followed a magnificent peroration broke the spell and a hurricane of cheers relieved the tension. Oh, that's a wonderful description, Bob. And I also remember, actually, I think Gladstone um, was meant to have written to Queen Victoria that Bradlaugh was a consummate speaker. So even, even Gladstone himself, who was not always on Bradlaugh's side, was aware of, um, was prepared to acknowledge Bradlaugh's eloquence. Yes, and you, you have to remember that these were the days without microphones, without any uh, that sort of electronic assistance. And Bradlaugh was often addressing huge crowds in the open air. And yet he could hold that crowd due to the sort of power of his personality, the power of his speech. I would add one other thing. Uh, which I think uh, Professor Nash uh, mentioned as well. And that is that, you know, Bradlaugh wasn't a great person for colleagues. He preferred followers. Yeah, and, and he was um, disliked perhaps by some of the other leaders of the secularist movement for that reason, wasn't he? 
Yes, he was. And it, they're, 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 in particular, there's the case of George Jacob Holyoke, um, who he really displaced as leader of secularism. And although they tried, they tried hard, the two of them, to find grounds on which to cooperate from time to time. There was always this personality problem between them and the fact that the younger man had displaced Holyoke from what he no doubt regarded as his true position. Mm. Yeah, so always that's like paradox with Bradlaugh that he was in favour of getting rid of privileges, but he was he didn't really want um, to have any rivals within the NSS. Certainly not. Professor Nash also spoke about Bradlaugh's desire to abolish religion and also pointed out that some secularists were not wholly against all types of religion. Let's look at Bradlaugh's view a bit more. Why was it, do you think, that Bradlaugh had such an antipathy to religion? Well, you know, in a funny sort of way, I don't don't think, if we want to understand Bradlaugh, I don't think we should start with his atheism. I think we should start with his radicalism and his desire to improve the lot of ordinary working people. That's where he started. Now, he looked around him and he thought that the problems that ordinary people confronted were born out of primarily the aristocratic nature of society and the aristocratic nature of politics as well. And he wanted to change that. He thought that the whole thing was underpinned by religion, and particularly the Church of England, because generally when Bradlaugh talks about Christianity or religion, he's talking about the Church of England. And he regarded as the Church of England as a sort of glue or even a thought police that was designed to first justify the privileges of the aristocracy, and particularly the monarchy, and to justify it, and to act, you know, in the old Marxist phrase, as an opium of the people. I mean, he had very fundamental disagreements with socialism, Marxism, but he would have agreed, I think, on that idea in particular. Yeah, the, the idea that religion was there to just control people. Absolutely. Absolutely. He thought smash religion or smash the Church of England, perhaps, and he'd free people who would make good. Now, one of the attractive things about Bradmore is his optimism, because he really thought that if you could make ordinary people free, free from the constraints of religion, they would make good. They would improve their lot. Which brings us nicely on to um, socialism and and Karl Marx himself, who of course um, was responsible for communism, which might have freed people from religion, but didn't make them free in other respects. Now, Bradlaugh seems to have had a personal antipathy to Karl Marx. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Well, they just had a different view of looking at the world, didn't they? Um, Marx had some pretty scathing things to say about Bradlaugh, actually, which um, I suppose in modern terms we'd say that um, Marx thought Bradlaugh's ego was far too large. Um, 
I'm sure that Bradlaugh had a similar opinion of Marx and uh, didn't like what he had to say very much either. Now, now Bradlaugh's, um, Bradlaugh's objections to socialism were, were brought out in a number of debates he had with them, in particular with, um, with Henry Hinman, um, a, a debate in 1884. So what, what, was, what were Bradlaugh's main points in that debate? Well, I've got three quotations here, Emma, which I think say it all. You know, Bradlaugh wrote an awful lot about socialism, but three quotations can really focus, I think, focus us on the main arguments he had. He was speaking at this debate with Hindman in 1884 about social evils, and he said this. He said, he, meaning Hinman, wants the state to remedy them. I want individuals to remedy them. So first of all, Bradlaugh's an individualist. Second, he comes on to the subject of how that change that the socialists are looking for can be achieved. And he said this, revolution, as he, Hinman says, is to be affected by argument if possible. Aye, but what if argument is not possible? Force. Yes, that's the term, force. Yes, that's the curse. So he feared violence. And, and Bradlaugh was a constitutionalist all his life, wasn't he? Absolutely, absolutely. And the he thought Parliament could be used as the vehicle through which the sort of changes he was seeking could be achieved. And again, that reflects his optimism, I think. Yes. And here's another aspect to his optimism as well, is his liberalism. And he said this to Hindman, in this collective, the state would direct everything and there would be no freedom at all. How's that for somebody speaking in 1884, looking ahead to the 20th century, and what happened in Russia, for example? And China. Or China today, absolutely. Bob Forder, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with David Nash and Bob Forder. Charles Bradlaugh was a controversial figure in his lifetime and afterwards. There's no doubt that he alienated some of his fellow secularists with his domineering style of leadership. However, for a man who is in every sense self-made, it's hard not to admire the reforms he did achieve in the treatment of non-believers in the law and parliament and in the freedom of publication. He was also a strong advocate for Indian self-rule at a time when this was unpopular. Bradlaugh did not succeed in abolishing blasphemy, or in removing bishops from the House of Lords, or in establishing a Republic of Great Britain or of India. But he sowed a seed, not to mention his individualism and sheer bloody-mindedness in the face of relentless opposition from the establishment. Fundamentally, for me, Charles Bradlaugh was a champion of the ancient British tradition of liberty that is under such grave threat on all sides today. For this reason, if for no other, he should be remembered. This episode was produced by the National Secular Society, all rights reserved. 
The views expressed by contributors do not necessarily represent those of the NSS. You can access the show notes and subscriber information for this and all our episodes at secularism.org.uk forward slash podcast. For feedback, comments and suggestions, please email podcast at secularism.org.uk. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a positive review wherever you can. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join us next time.